You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. As an institution, they exist to repress, to defend property and wealth. Yes, they exist also to fight crime, theoretically, but their principal objective is defending wealth and property, whether that means intervening in strikes or whether, you know, repressing people of color. It's not in any way a progressive role. So... We got to have that discussion about policing and, you know, what is crime and what is not? And what are the social ills that need addressing and how is that best done? But when you come out of a settler state where people were encouraged to use guns, where slave patrols, colonial militias were constituted, where these uh, were constituted racially, where those in the slave patrols of colonial militias were encouraged to use those weapons against the other, none of this should surprise us. On this episode of Labor Wave, we speak with Bill Fletcher Jr., who's a longtime labor leader and author of multiple books, including Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor, and A New Path Towards Social Justice, which he co-authored with Dr. Fernando Gapacin, and a new mystery thriller called The Man Who Fell from the Sky. We speak on the emerging demands upon the AFL-CIO to sever their ties with police unions, specifically the International Union of Police Associations, or the IUPA. Bill Fletcher Jr. cautions that these demands could have the consequence of providing the right wing with scripts to claim police are being victimized by the left and even enable Trumpists to more easily stoke reactionary fires. Fletcher suggests that our focus should be more on police repression and having a reckoning with our own past within the labor movement that has a complicated record on racial justice, to say the least. We also speak on the paradoxical quality of online technologies confining workers to more hours on the job rather than liberation from work, and the need for organized labor to go deeper and further in demanding emancipation. For transparency, 
I have been involved in a local graduate employee union effort towards drafting resolutions and pushing the demands upon the AFL-CIO to disaffiliate with the IUPA. I do believe Bill Fletcher Jr.'s words of caution on the matter really warrant a lot of attention and reflection and assessment. That being said, I want to be transparent about my own positions on the matter, and I do believe that the maneuver towards creating distance between the labor movement at large and police unions is important, and that we need to continue pursuing this path without necessarily undermining our own strategic efficacy on the matter. Two graduate employee unions in the Oregon area have joined the growing number of union locals to publish statements pressuring the AFL-CIO to disaffiliate with the IUPA. And of those two, one of them is my former employer, the Coalition of Graduate Employees, CGE6069. I was involved in these conversations and supportive of the efforts, and I'm going to be posting the links to those statements in our show notes. We have a couple of other episodes coming up from LaborWave. One of them is on Waste After the Revolution with Andrea Haverkamp, incoming president for CG6069 and an environmental engineering PhD candidate. We also hosted a conversation with two wildcat striking workers from the UC system. So pay attention. Those are coming out in the next few weeks. And we hope you enjoy this episode with Bill Fletcher Jr. There's the protest happening in streets all over the place, sparked in Minneapolis. And the main rallying call is to defund the police. In addition to that, Within organized labor, there's been increasing calls amongst like passionate labor enthusiasts on the AFL-CIO and SCIU to oust their ties with police unions, specifically the uh, IUPA of the AFL-CIO. And I believe it's the Writers Guild East was probably the first union local to go on record with a statement calling formally for the IUPA to be severed from the AFL-CIO. But in response so far, Richard Trumka, the president, and the AFL-CIO general board has gone on record pushing back to some degree saying, we want reform, we don't want to cut our ties. What do you think of all of this? What are, you, what are your thoughts on the context and their response so far? Well, the context is that people are sick of police repression. And they're sick of piecemeal reforms. They're sick of continued lynchings, um, and they want some dramatic change. We all do. We meaning progressive people. Now, the problem with the demands around police unions is that they miss that the central problem is not police unions, it's, it's police repression. It's the institution of the police as part of the repressive apparatus of the capitalist state. The nature of policing in the United States, in a racial, racial settler state, it has been created in a certain way. And you could tomorrow vaporize every police union, every law enforcement union, and the problem wouldn't fundamentally go away because the problem is built into the authoritarian militaristic culture of law enforcement and the ideology that backs it up. So when people start talking about expelling the unions, uh, law enforcement unions, or usually they don't say law enforcement, they say police. I, I push back. 
And I say that actually, no, what we need is a broad movement-wide discussion about what should be the role of law enforcement in a democratic society. And as a consequence, what should be the role of unions? Because we have to understand the depth of the problem. Let me give you an example. Police get indicted every so often for murder or other other forms of abuse. They go to trial. They get acquitted. And they get acquitted, not in every case, but overwhelmingly, by juries that are not made up of police. How do we explain that? And we have to explain it by understanding that it's not just about race. It's about an ethos that exists, that the police are supposed to be granted discretion. That's what the society always says. They should be granted discretion. We should not be second-guessing the cops, uh, that they have a rough job because their job is to hold back barbarism. And in order to hold back barbarism, they often have to take extraordinary measures. Until we get at that, eliminating police unions is not going to make a damn bit of a difference. Sure, the police unions in some cases will um, get someone off through collective bargaining means. But let's look at those police departments that don't have unions. And let's see whether there's a qualitative difference. No, we've got to get to the very basic issue of uh, policing. Do you see the demands amongst some of these labor folks to oust or sever ties with police unions as potentially complementary or even supporting the broader demands of society right now to defund the police? Or do you see those in conflict? They are reactive slogans. Well-intentioned, perhaps, but reactive. And the consequences of them, uh, potential consequences of being missed. For example, if you do not have a discussion, a broad discussion, that leads to actual resolutions about what the role of law enforcement should be, what does the, what does the labor movement think should be the role of law enforcement? Expelling the police unions or law enforcement unions will make them victims, quote unquote. And I'll put a dollar to a donut that within 30 minutes of expelling, Donald Trump will be tweeting about the alleged authoritarian left and how it is mistreating the men and women of valor. And all of a sudden, we're on the defensive. If the, if the law enforcement unions want to leave, they should leave. And fundamentally, I think that law enforcement units should all be consolidated into one union. You should not have law enforcement that's part of SEIU, AFSME, AFGE, Teamsters, USCW, whatever. They should all be part of one union. And... Ideally, that union would not be part of the AFL-CIO because police, law enforcement unions are not part of the labor movement. They're part of an assemblage of trade unions. 
But if you, you know, I, I wrote something the other day and I was quoting A. Philip Randolph, my favorite Randolph quote, where he says, the essence of trade unionism is social uplift. Could you say with a straight face that the essence of law enforcement unionism is social uplift? I think not. Okay, so that's problem number one, Alex. But here's, here's problem number two. Problem number two is that the history of organized labor in the United States is, let's put it this way, complicated. <laughs> and particularly when it comes to race. And, you know, we can talk all we want about how backward the law enforcement unions are. But I, I could trump you on that, no pun intended, by pointing to a, a number of unions, particularly uh, the skilled trades, that were white supremacists that continue to have major problems around racial injustice. I mean, you know, look, Alex, up until 1964, there were unions in this country that had in their constitutions provisions that membership was only open to white men of high moral standing. And I'm not talking about police unions. So let's be a little bit honest about this and realize that if we're going to have a discussion, let's have the discussion. Let's have the discussion about race in the labor movement. The discussion that the AFL-CIO started a few years ago under Trumpka, but I would argue was not completed. Let's have that discussion. And then let's also link that with this discussion about law enforcement in a democratic society. And let's use that to move towards real uh, parameters on what does it mean to be in the labor movement. So when people are saying, let's throw these things out, eh, but, you know, but the, but the other part of the problem is like, okay, let's assume for the sake of humility that we're not geniuses. And that we didn't just like come up with this idea and it's possible that this has been discussed for a while, right? So what might have prevented a number of these unions, AFSCME, SEIU, AOG, from getting rid of law enforcement? Well, let me answer that by starting with this. Law enforcement in these unions has played a very conservative role. Which is one of the reasons I think they should all be in their own union. But the other thing that's real is that in some cases, these law enforcement components constitute very important parts of the overall unions, numerically and financially. So, for example, if you were to say to AFGE, American Federation of Government Employees, get rid of law enforcement, what does that mean? That means get rid of ICE, Border Patrol, and Bureau of Prisons. Three major components, two of which in an open shop environment have 95% union membership. See what I'm saying? Oh yeah, uh, from my vantage point, it's pretty impressive when you hear membership numbers of that, that, that high and that density. That's right, in open shop. So, you know, I mean, so you got to understand institutionally, this is what you're up against, which is, again, why I'm saying we need a debate. 
We need to push the envelope. But also, as I said earlier, I'm really, I don't want to see these guys turned into victims because they're not. But they will, there is a very good chance that they will present themselves like that. You know, already a number of these law enforcement unions and components of other organizations are rogue operations politically, going out, endorsing Trump when the majority of their of the union that they're part of opposes that, uh, or speaking out on issues where the national union has a completely different point of view. So as I say, let's encourage them to leave. They'd be happier in their own union. Yeah. I mean, and what you're saying too about it's the possible risk is turning them into victims. They already are speaking that language in some places. I, I can't recall specifically, but I saw this headline of a, I think it was a police union president claiming that they were being bullied and victimized and intimidated. But let's, I want to talk about what you were saying uh, reminds me of one feature of the potential discussion that's happening, at least online, that I've seen that I, I, I find confusing is there's a number of folks who I think are well-intentioned that are going out of their way to say police aren't even workers. And I understand where they're coming from. And I think it's kind of this dance of like trying to say that's why they therefore don't deserve unions and collective bargaining. But it doesn't seem very helpful to claim that police aren't workers because it's pretty obvious that they're workers, but they have a functional role right. within the capitalist state as workers. No, it's a very important point. I mean, I, I saw someone say they're not workers, they're employees. You know, okay, whatever. But the point is that they have a right to unionize. And I think we have to also be very careful because I was just reading this article the other day where this uh, guy in New Jersey, a columnist, was arguing that the problems with police are not matters of racism, but are matters of public sector union. And we will hear that battle cry. I've been hearing for years people arguing, for example, that teachers shouldn't have unions because in order to institute education reform, allegedly you need to get rid of future unions. And it's, that's completely absurd. But it, you, you can see it can be a very slippery slope when you say, no, 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 police shouldn't have unions, but the rest of the public sector, well, how long will it be until it's, okay, police shouldn't have unions, then maybe a traffic controller shouldn't have unions. And maybe teachers shouldn't have unions. And maybe firefighters shouldn't have unions. And you just go down... That's slope. So such arguments really don't help us. That doesn't mean that we should consider the police part of the labor movement. As I said earlier, I don't consider them part of the labor movement. As an institution, they exist to repress, to defend property and wealth. Yes, they exist also to fight crime, theoretically, but their principal objective is defending wealth and property, whether that means intervening in strikes or whether it, you know, repressing people of color. It's not in any way a progressive role. Well, as you're saying, what you're hoping for is that we deepen the conversation and the debate around 
what the role of the labor movement should be. And maybe it sounds like what people are trying to do is have something of a reckoning with our own history in the labor movement, or at least they should be. And I agree with you. So I, there was a while ago, I heard you talk about racial capitalism. Mm -hmm. And as you're detailing this, it was just things I knew, but it was kind of extraordinary to hear it all laid out, the insights around how much organized labor has helped facilitate, in a large degree, racial capitalism. So what do you think could be a way of kind of being honest with ourselves about our own history, our contemporary practices, and how we can do better to be a force against racist oppression? I have an article coming out in the summer issue of Monthly Review on the racial settler state and organized labor. Let me respond to your question uh, in a couple of parts. I started using the language of racial capitalism a number of years ago under the influence of my late friend uh, and mentor, Manny Marable, who emphasized the point because he was trying to get at sort of the specificity of U.S. capitalism. I use the term now more with an asterisk because all capitalism is racialized. You know, I think that there's a problem on the left with is people that believe that there's some sort of pure economic system called capitalism, and it's terrible, but it's pure. And then onto that, as if you have elements of silly putty, you put on race and gender and other things but that the basic framework of capitalism is pure. And I think what Marable and others have pointed out is the centrality of race in the construction of capitalism. Now, there is something particular here in the United States, and that is racial settlerism, that the United States, having been founded as a settler state, brings with it certain characteristics that are different from France or Germany. For example, uh, you have a situation where the English in settling the North America had no interest in coming to some modus vivendi with the native population. And um, they were not interested in creating a mixed population as took place in Latin America when the Spanish and the Portuguese invaded. And um, one of the reasons there was that the Spanish and Portuguese didn't send the same large numbers of settlers that the English did. But what was constructed was ultimately a vision of a white republic. And this vision affected everything, including the labor movement, or the, the developing trade union. And so when we today are looking at the history of organized labor and its current practices, part of what you have to understand is that it's not just about discrimination. A lot of people have faced discrimination. Irish immigrants face discrimination. But they didn't face racism in the United States. They ultimately became absorbed into the white bloc. Sicilians 
face discrimination. In fact, interesting story I once heard from a Sicilian American who told me after a lecture I gave that when his ancestors arrived uh, and went through Ellis Island on their immigration form under race, it was stamped dark. And I said, wow, does that explain everything about the relationship between Italians and African-Americans? Because basically what the people that stamped there were saying is that you're part of a suspect population. And thus Italians had to constantly fight to show that they weren't black. It was just like amazing, right? It's like dawn broke on Marblehead. But Italians, even when they were, and Sicilians, even when they were discriminated against, ultimately get absorbed into the white bloc. That didn't happen to African-Americans. That didn't happen to Chicanos. Didn't happen to Puerto Ricans. Didn't happen to pre-1965 Asians. It was different. And so we have to like, we have to like really look at our history and understand that the U.S. trade union movement was built largely on a certain assumption that it was operating within a white republic. And even some of the best elements for a long time saw themselves as extending a hand to a guest and bringing the guest in. Sort of like if you invite someone for dinner. Right? You're inviting for dinner. You're not necessarily inviting them to, uh, to spend a night and move in with you. You're inviting them for dinner. And that's frequently what happened with our relationship with the trade union movement. So what I'm calling for is a, a real rethinking of this relationship, which ultimately uh, comes down to a rethinking of what is this United States of America thing? You really opened the bigness of this conversation. <laughs> it's hard to even know where to go next. I'll take that as a compliment. It is a compliment. No, I, I knew when this was starting to become more emergent and popular, I was like, I need to hear Bill Fletcher's thoughts on this. Thank you. This is going to be a big shift in tangent, but I'm wondering if you're willing to, because before we started recording, you were mentioning how much you've never worked this hard in your life under sheltering in place in the conditions of COVID. That's just very interesting to me because I, I similarly feel like I've just been nonstop and actually socializing more, even though I don't see anybody. I'm having like so many more conversations than ever before in my life. And there's something paradoxical about all this, right? Mm -hmm. Like the first time you're on the show, we talked a little bit about technology and work mm -hmm. and the liberatory p potential of technology. But Goddamn! If it doesn't feel like the technology has imprisoned me way, way more right now, so can you can you just speak a little bit on your experience of this and your thoughts on this? The COVID nineteen and economic collapse as crises have clearly changed everything for all of us. Uh, for me, part of what happened was in the. I, I make a living as a consultant now consultant, speaker, and writer. So I, I do most of my work at home or I'm traveling. So I haven't been traveling since the beginning of March. The big change was when my daughter and her husband lost childcare and they're both working. So all of a sudden that became a responsibility for my wife and me. 
we're not retired. So it meant squeezing in, and our granddaughter's lovable. I mean, she, I just absolutely adore her. But it meant squeezing in this work, this, this big piece of time, Monday through Thursdays. And then on top of that, in the beginning, there was like almost silence. And then all of a sudden, it started to remind me of birds in the morning. You know, it's like around 4.30, you start hearing one or two chirp. And then all of a sudden, there's this, what's the word, cacophony? And it's like, you think you're listening to a Congress unfolding, right? And that's how it felt. In the beginning, it was like one or two, and, and let's make sure to use Zoom to keep, keep in touch and everything, and want to make sure that people aren't alone. And then, oh, my God, it's like one call after another. I have spent my – I work 12-hour days, at least 12 hours. You know, I was, I was telling you before – this afternoon, I'm going to be going from 12 to about 7 nonstop with Zoom calls. And I have found I'm not by myself. So on the one hand, if this COVID crisis had happened, let's say, in 1978, we would be in a very different situation. I mean, everything would have come to a stop. And the levels of isolation might have been even more catastrophic. Or we would have had a version of 1919. And I've been referring to 1919 a lot recently because, you know, with the upsurge, the uprisings that took place, a lot of people started talking about 1968. I think that the better analogy is 1919. 1919, we had a depression. We had the so-called Spanish flu, which was actually the American flu that started here. We had Red Summer, which were the pogroms carried out against African-American communities. We had the Seattle General Strike. We had the Red Scare. All of these things together came, you know, came together and made the year explosive. Well, you know, during the, um, the so-called Spanish flu, people were dying. I mean, like, not just in hospitals. I mean, they would just die. You know, they would be in their homes and never resurface. And that could have been us had this happened, you know, a few years, a, a couple of decades earlier. So on the one hand, we're in communication with one another. But what's happening now is that employers including many that had opposed working from home, have now come to realize what technology can bring us and that we are on call. Those of us that have jobs that don't necessitate that we are at a particular point of production, that we are on call. And there's a frightening aspect to this because it's like, it's sort of up to you as an individual to try to figure out when you're going to actually have a break or whether you can. Uh, there are immense demands because there's, an, there's something implicit where, it's, uh, where what is not being said but is being said very loudly is, well, what else do you have to do? 
Why can't you do the Zoom call for two hours? And then there's also this expectation of an immediate response, which has always been a problem with the internet, by the way, Alex. I mean, the, the, um, we've never established true protocols for the internet. You know, it's like if I send you an email, should you respond right away to acknowledge? Well, that's what I do. But most, a lot of people don't. And, and sometimes when people don't respond, it's like, well, what does this mean? Does this mean you didn't get the email? Does it mean that you're saying F you? Uh, does it mean that you're thinking about it, right? Well, now what's happened is that there is a demand for immediate response and a demand that you open up your time. So this is something that's going to have to be renegotiated because the implications well, the, the, the positive news is that we can do a lot of things and we don't have to be in an office. We can visit family members virtually. That's the good news. The bad news is the idea that we're on call 24-7. I 100% agree. And for me, it's been very clear. I mean, I know you and I are both kind of in unique situations with the type of work that we do. But now it's like the line between work and personal time, it's non-existent. Like it just isn't. It doesn't exist at all. And I have to imagine. And I have a coworker who has children, and you were mentioning your childcare. For folks with children at home, working like doing their school online, right. how much more that is true. And then also the fact that we always in the labor movement should have been organizing on demands for power over the technologies, like a hand in shaping it. And I can't imagine that that wasn't also a demand for racial justice at the same time. Like the technology gap has to be intensifying these inequities. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and people talk about it in terms of education and, and who has access to technology, but also who has what kind of jobs where they actually can do it at home. You know, it's like I remember watching one of these right-wing protesters calling for the reopening economy. And her main complaint was that she needed her hair done. Well, I need my hair cut. I do. My hair hasn't been this long in decades, right? But does that mean that someone needs to put their life in line to cut my hair? I mean, there is a sort of arrogance and privilege that exists in this. But the other part of this is that what's happened as a result of the COVID crisis and collapse is a major setback for women workers because women, particularly if they're single parents, in many cases have to quit their jobs in order to do childcare. And, you know, even in the situation with my wife and I, we're, we're partners not just romantically, but partners in our consulting. And, but we have to balance off this childcare with our, with our granddaughter. And in part because a number of the, our major clients are clients that I'm working directly with, that means an imbalance, you know, in terms of childcare. Well, this is, this is, a, this is a social issue and uh, that, that really has to be looked at. 
Um, and the expectation that women are going to be the ones that will quit their jobs in order to do the child care. I mean, I realize that, you know, in the absence of a vaccine, there's all these issues and stuff like that. But there are social issues that are disconnected from the vaccine question. Well, I want to respect the fact that you're going to be on these calls all day, as am I. And we should come to a conclusion here. Are there any final thoughts coming back to the topic that we started on with police unions and our role in organized labor that you want to share? Well, actually, there's two concluding points, one that has nothing directly to do with what you're raising, but uh, is in some ways a summary. But in terms of the first one, yes. You see, there is objectively, when people are talking about abolishing the police, defunding the police, what we're really talking about is restructuring, rethinking and restructuring policing. A few years ago, my daughter was held up at gunpoint, not by a cop, and robbed. Now, let me be clear. I couldn't care less what would have happened to the guy that put a gun to my daughter's head. My view is you pull a gun on an unarmed civilian, you get whatever you get. I don't want to care about how rough your life was. But that's only one aspect of policing. And, and it's like, I needed a cop. I mean, the, you know, I, I wasn't going to call Ghostbusters, right? I mean, I needed, right? We needed a cop. But there's other aspects of policing that get focused on this person that has a gun. So you have the homeless person that may be acting up and a cop shows up with a gun. You have a family squabble, maybe even worse than a family squabble. And a cop shows up with a gun. You have a report about someone unusual in a community and a cop shows up with a gun. And they don't just show up with a gun, but they show up with a certain mindset. And this is where race becomes very important. They show up and the question is like, what are you doing here, for instance? Or an assumption that the fear on the part of a white person about one of us of color is legitimate. This is what made that Central Park incident so important and, and something that I don't think people understand. I wrote a column and I said that the false reports to police should be treated as hate crimes because the reality is that if a white person maliciously calls the cops on us because of something that they either don't understand or they don't agree on, but where there is no threat, they're putting our lives in, line, in danger. And for that white woman in Central Park to have call the cops about an allegedly threatening black man, it's like, what the hell did she expect was going to happen? The cops are going to show up and see this damsel in distress, and they might put a bullet in the head of this guy, only later to say, oops. So we got to have that discussion about policing and, you know, what is crime and what is not, and what are the social ills that need addressing. 
And how is that best done? But when you come out of a settler state where people were encouraged to use guns, where slave patrols, colonial militias were constituted, where these uh, were constituted racially, where those in the slave patrols of colonial militias were encouraged to use those weapons against the other, none of this should surprise us. That's why it's all part of a broader discussion. Now, the thing that I was going to say is a kind of unrelated point is about the moment that we're in and that it's really important that we fight despair and that we fight apocalyptic thinking. Ever since the outbreak of the coronavirus, I have seen time and again on Facebook and other places, people writing or posting articles that basically suggest that the world is coming to an end. And so one day a friend of mine posted an article from someone. I responded and I said, do you really believe this? If you do, then we should call it a day. Or we should get a lot of herb and get really high. Because basically what you're saying is that the situation is hopeless. And is that what you're saying? And there, I'm not going to name names, but there's a number of prominent writers out there that all they can do is talk about the horrors, about how bad everything is. And what they seem to think is that by writing about how bad things are, this will inspire people to reaction. But this will be sort of like shaking somebody out, shaking them up, right? And shaking them out of their blur, right? And that they'll say, oh, thank you. You know, it's like in those war movies where someone smacks somebody and says, get back up to the front line, right? And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. What's more likely, is that people after reading this stuff are gonna say it's hopeless. I'm gonna retreat into my home, to my family, and I am just gonna prepare for the end. I think that the, these rebellions that we saw, and clearly I'm not supporting, you know, the burning of people's homes or stores and stuff like that, but that's what often happens in spontaneous rebellions. But these rebellions began, and for the most part, were peaceful protests of people that were sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that was one of the best responses to despair. Although dangerous, because not just because of the cops, but because of COVID-19. And I'm deeply concerned about the protesters and what the health would be. But that's another story. So the main thing, though, is that it's really important for progressive people to be articulating what, does, what needs to be done. And not just a litany of disasters. We don't need that. We just don't. We need encouragement. Well, that, you know, you're always insightful. I'm really glad that you took time to talk to us today on Labor Wave. And even as overworked as you are, you're still as brilliant as ever. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being invited.